Hello, Down the Hatch listeners. Welcome to this, our newest installment, focused on the topic of weakness and fatigue. Let me ask you this. Have you ever decided that one of your dysphagic patients needs strength training? If so, this next question is for you. How did you define weakness? Better yet, what is the scientific or clinical definition of weakness? In this episode, we discuss weakness and fatigue with Dr. Leo Ferreira, an associate professor in the Department of Applied Physiology and Kinesiology at the University of Florida. He is a clinically trained physical therapist and scientist who studies muscle biology and aims to develop new therapies for skeletal muscle weakness in chronic diseases. Our aim in this podcast is to encourage clinicians who treat dysphagia to rethink whether their patients are truly weak versus whether they have timing, range of motion, or even sensory abnormalities. Listen, consider, enjoy. This is going to cover a topic that is near and dear to my heart because it drives me bonkers. But before we get to that point, let's do our introductions. You guys know who I, who I am. I'm Ianessa Humbert. I'm Alicia Vos. And we have a special guest, Leo. He is going to introduce himself, but it's really important that you understand that he is from Brazil. That's the most important thing to understand, <laughs> right? So, why don't so, you introduce yourself? I'm Leo Ferreira, and I'm Associate Professor at the University of Florida in the Department of Applied Physiology and Kinesiology, and I study muscle weakness and fatigue in the context of chronic diseases, specifically heart disease. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I see you biking around town, so you must have a healthy heart. <laughs> I hope so. You hope so? I haven't tested it. I so. hope you're not like some fields where they're the worst at what they're experts on, yeah. like pulmonologists <laughs> who like smoke all the time and you're like, I need you to work that out. Yeah. I yeah, need you yeah. to stop doing that. Or speech pathologists who can't communicate. Ooh. There are many of us. Absolutely. So the first thing that we want, I want to do is introduce this concept here, which is that there are, in fact, Dysphagia Research Society just happened, we just got back last yep. week, and I want to quote someone who I have a lot of respect for, his name is Tim McCullough. And he is the chair of ENT, of otolaryngology. He is an ENT at the University of Wisconsin. And during the last session, which I missed, I was very bummed that I missed this, but it was a session on skill, right? And the I, one thing he said, I'm not going to quote this exactly. Actually, Alicia, why don't you say it since you were there? I think, and I'm probably going to have to paraphrase it, okay. but... Um, he thanked I, her for focusing on the impairment. Yeah, so he he acknowledged that it's really refreshing to hear somebody talking about when it comes to therapy that we really need to focus on what is actually impaired in the swallow. And I believe the loose quote was, instead of just exercising everybody's tongues to make them stronger. Right, he said, can we get away from this hammer nail approach? Exactly. Strengthening everybody's tongue. And so that brings me to a couple of podcasts which we've had on EMST, which is expiratory muscle strength training, and um, other topics like lingual strengthening, which dominate um, therapy. However, 
if I add, now these are non-swallow tasks. So you have a bulb in your mouth, you're pushing it to the roof of your mouth, or you're blowing through a trainer and really exercising your expiratory muscles, right? But these are done to often somehow translate into swallowing function. And it's difficult for anyone to answer, how do you define a weak swallow? When I say, okay, so you're strengthening your tongue, that's cool. What's the definition of a weak swallow? Or what does is, what is a weak tongue actually look like during a swallow? And they'll often say, well, there's residue afterward. And I'll often say, that doesn't confirm that the tongue was weak. Maybe they have issues with range of motion. Maybe they can't feel the food is left over. There are so many other variables to consider before you jump to weakness. So I'm worried that the term weak is a generalized term for things aren't as good as they could be. They might not mean weak in terms of force generation, they just mean not so good, or they actually think it's weak, I'm not sure. So yeah. the reason we asked you to be here is to help us understand some basic definitions in other fields that may or may not apply to ours, but we need to start with what has been established. So the first question I have is, how do you define weakness? Okay, so I would say from um, our perspective, weakness is um, loss um, in the ability to generate force. That's what weakness mm -hmm. is. Big picture, just force. Force like in Newtons. Um, if someone cannot generate force, then we would say they're weak. Now, if you want to know what the mechanism of that weakness is, then you really need to get into more specific testing because then um, if they're not generating forces, that because they're not um, attempting the, the process correctly. So mm -hmm. is that something more central or is mm -hmm. it really their muscles that are dysfunctional or they tried, but I, their neuromuscular junction is the one that is dysfunctional. Yeah. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up to make sure that our listeners are following. When yeah. you say... They, there are problems initiating. You mean the central, when you say central, you're talking about the nervous system saying, hey, muscle, turn on. Yes. So there's the initiation, and then maybe that's fine, but you're saying when it does say turn on, it doesn't recruit enough muscle fibers to have adequate force. Is that fair? That's that's another yeah. another potential cause. Okay. So they okay. don't really, they're not able to recruit all motor units. Ah. And then, therefore, they are weak. But... You also could have a situation where they are recruiting all their motor units or they are recruiting it properly because recruiting all I think is very difficult and as we discuss more nervous system things um, I would say Evangelos Christo, our friend Evangelos mm -hmm. is probably better to talk about mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. but my understanding is that we are not generally capable of recruiting all our motor units not voluntarily at least sure. I think we need we need some um, different approaches to get And when you that. say recruit all motor units, for the listeners, what we're basically saying is that a muscle, let's say your bicep, has a finite amount of motor units and, and muscle fibers. And so for a ta given task, you might not need to recruit every single fiber in that muscle to do the task, especially for most of what we do. Yes, um, right. And perhaps even if you're lifting the heaviest thing you could ever lift, what you're saying is, if some studies suggest you probably still don't recruit every single muscle fiber in that muscle group. That's true. Okay. That's true. Yeah. yeah. In fact, you know, when you were mentioning about uh, treatment and how do we treat things, um, if you get someone to do strength training, mm -hmm. there is a marked increase in strength in the first week or two of training where the muscles really did not undergo any change. This is all learning. It's mm -hmm. all the person learning how to recruit that muscle, how ah. to use that. 
So the more untrained the person is, Mm -hmm. the larger the increase will be early on and their muscles didn't get any bigger. Mm-hmm. They just know they're it's just a uh, learning how to recruit and use the motor units that are there. I think that's a really important point that I want to emphasize and I want to take it back just just one step backwards um, and mention a few things that's interesting about swallowing. So when we're evaluating swallowing, there are a lot of factors that are involved in making a swallow, we'll say accurate. And one of them is the timing of how the structures move. But it's also the pressure generation, which in, you know, that more encapsulates the force and the muscles need to be strong enough to create that pressure. And there are really two different pathophysiologies that are involved in that. So somebody can have an issue with timing. Their muscles are perfectly fine, but we see these timing discrepancies that cause somebody to aspirate or have an unsafe swallow. But on the other end of the spectrum, you can have somebody where their, their timing is in fact intact, but the muscle force generation is impaired. Okay. And as a, as a clinician, what I find is that the term weak gets used to describe all of these things. Right. And that's where I think some of the pet peeve right. plays in is that the term weak has a very specific place. And we're trying in some fields. In some fields. And we're trying to distinguish that because issues with timing you would treat very differently than an issue of weakness. Same with range of motion. Absolutely. So everything could be timely, it just didn't go as far as it should. So I'm thinking about and my knowledge in this area is very weak. May I use that term? <laughs> Ooh, we'll get back to that later. Like you we'll guys decide later me. if you can use that. <laughs> okay. Um, and so if somebody is walking, do you, there's something that PTs do to get a sense of function. And they have to walk a certain distance and they time it to determine, get an idea of how, how mm-hmm. functional this person is, right? So you see them walking down the hall and they have these markers in the hallway to say, yep, you've reached that spot. Now somebody might have, may take multiple, like twice as many steps as somebody else because their stride length is just shorter, but they can still get there. It doesn't mean that their quads are necessarily weak. It could just mean that perhaps they have balance issues, right? Mm-hmm. There are a million different things that a PT might be thinking about in terms of why it took them twice as long or they need so many steps to get there and they might Oh, I'm going to say the F word, fatigue, halfway Ooh. there. I know. Already. That's We're another, like three I minutes know. into this podcast. I know. I know. <laughs> and so that's another word that drives me bonkers. It's like, <laughs> they didn't finish their meal. They're fatiguing. It's like, how do you know that they can fatigue or not? Yeah. So um, that's that in another concept is something we're dealing yeah. with. So. And I think, I think in the big picture here, where this really translates into an issue is that we have, in terms of treatment paradigms in our field, it's a heavy emphasis on strengthening. So that's really where this weakness plays in is that if somebody has an issue with timing and coordination in their swallow, a lot of our treatments are actually geared towards strengthening the swallow. So it's let's throw all of these exercise regimens at this person and we're not exactly treating what needs to be treated. So let me ask this. When you all, so what what functions would you say you can speak to more so? What types of behaviors. Obviously, I know you're not a swallowing expert. That's yeah, cool. Yes. And you talked about cardiac muscle, for instance. Yes. Okay. Um, that's not what I 
normally study and it's okay. on strength is a difficult one because mm -hmm. then we're dealing with pressures and different you know, types of muscles sure, sure, yeah sure. yeah um i mean the one that i feel more comfortable with would would be the diaphragm or the inspiratory muscles right but mm -hmm. you know we we can talk about i don't know the knee extensor so okay. quadriceps let's you know, talk so about knee can, extension right yeah. so uh, let's say we're talking about a task that is common where they check sit to stand, for instance, okay. right? You do need some quad muscle muscles for that, so you can just bear weight on your legs, right? So if someone has difficulty with that task, how would one know that it is strength versus anything else, do you think? What are the various things they might check? They might check? Yeah, so... Um you know, that one, I would think you can have, like you mentioned, balance issues, mm -hmm. right? They, they have difficulty, um, they have weaknesses potentially in their quadriceps muscles, mm -hmm. in the gluteus, or they have some weakness in really muscles of their, their core or abdominal muscles. So I think one way to start it is, if you want to know that weakness is the problem, then you have to start by measuring force in really like one of the machines in the gym that you really focus on your knee extensors. Mm -hmm. And then you can then do a leg press and see mm -hmm. what happens to the leg. I mean, the leg press would be the better one for mm -hmm. a seat to stand. And if you see that there is, you know, they're less than what the normal is, whatever, that's a difficult issue, right? What's normal? Mm -hmm. But uh, mm -hmm. whatever the normal is, mm -hmm. if it's less than what you expect for that, body weight, height, gender. and age, and sex. gender, mm -hmm. then, you, or sex, yeah, then you will, you will say, okay, that person has weakness, and those right. muscles are weak, mm -hmm. um, but you don't know where that weakness is coming from. Then you, you're at that issue of, is it something more nervous system, or is it really the muscle itself that is dysfunctional, or is the neuromuscular junction? Then you have to go with more specific tests to define to differentiate those. Yeah, to separate it out. So then. So do you do you do PTs or in that task they probably don't just take them first to the gym to the machine, right? They often go to their bedside and they have them do some functional task and assess that. Then they say, mm, I need to differentiate across all the things you mentioned. Let's have you do some leg presses and you should be able to, let's just give you 30 pounds. You should be able to certainly press 30 pounds given your age and height, etc. And they can barely move it, right? Yeah. Then they are saying, if I'm just looking at strength and weight bearing force generation to move a load, that was lower than normal, right? Mm -hmm. Do you know if the opposite ever happens? They can stand up just fine. Do they not make it to the weight machine? So is it necessary to test strength when they seem to be able to stand just fine? When the task is functional. The task is functional. Do they even bother to test strength? I don't know. I don't hmm. know if that, hmm. I mean, it depends, right? You have to see what the goals are. And yeah. so, you know, whenever I teach the clinical exercise physiology course here, the lectures that I contribute there, um, I talk about cardiac rehab a little bit. And, you know, in that sense, people have a different mentality. It's all about endurance, endurance training. And what I tell the students is that whenever you're treating a patient, you have to see also what their goals are, right? So if that person can stand and they're happy with how fast they can stand, and you're happy and you think that there are no issues of them standing and stay in that standing position, mm -hmm. then I, I would not expect that they will take them any further. Okay. Um, especially if it's inpatient, then mm -hmm. if it's outpatient and then they refer that, well, I'm not able to, I don't know, climb the steps, we're already thinking about fatigue more so yeah. than strength. But, yeah. uh, you know, if there is a, a task that they're not being able to accomplish, then perhaps they would try to understand a little bit further. 
Mm-hmm. I think it would be in an outpatient setting. It would be pretty fair to say that it's important to look and define: is this a balance issue or is mm-hmm. this a strength issue? Because mm-hmm. it will dictate therapy, right? Absolutely. If it's a, ter- a balance issue, then they should focus more on balance training. Mm-hmm. If it's a strength issue, then they need to do a little bit more weightlifting or whatever mm-hmm. else they choose mm-hmm. to do. Or if it's an initiation issue. Um, you know, getting a movement started yeah. or, you know, being able to have adequate coordination. I think of these patients and I think all the leg presses in the world isn't going to address right. the, yeah. the timing and the coordination of a movement. And I think that's really that gray area that we... are talking about skill in that situation, like yeah. having a smooth sequence of events mm-hmm. that is necessary for the task. Exactly. That Which perhaps is... before a stroke was totally fine, and now you have to say, no, you got to put your hand here, then put your foot down, and yes. that kind of thing. Yes, okay. exactly. And sometimes that involves bringing in more cortical involvement and... and you know, to help regulate that task. And, and there's just, there's a lot of things outside of just weak, not weak strength. And um, you mentioned balance. I think that's another another important aspect that we don't deal with as much in swallowing yeah. or at all. Yeah. Um, but it is one of those factors that can influence a function, functional movement that's outside of just whether there's weakness or not. I think what we're saying is for any given task, there are going to be a constellation of factors that can impact the extent to which that task is done functionally. And um, while I can't imagine that a a person who is, ooh, another F word, frail, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but we'll talk about that word too. Let's say they have been diagnosed and, you know, everyone agrees that this person is frail. Um, and they have issues with, you know, sit to stand, and maybe you're not sure if it's completely balanced, if it's completely coordination, if it's completely uh, strengthening. I suspect that strengthening is easy enough to do, and there's generalized um, improvement with that exercise that it wouldn't necessarily even hurt for that person to do that if they're thought to be frail. What do you think? Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that, yes, you won't hurt to do. I think at that stage, you know, it's it's a matter of optimizing the time that you have with that person. So if you're not treating the primary problem, the question is, can you treat the primary problem, yeah. right? Um, because I, let's say that the primary problem for that weakness is denervation. Yeah. Then is just strengthening the muscle gonna fix that denervation? Can I'm you not define sure. that for everybody? Denervation? Yes, so if you don't have the muscle fibers that are innervated, mm-hmm. right? And that could happen uh, traumatically, but it could also happen with aging. Mm-hmm. And so, if there are no nerves, then trying to do it in a voluntary fashion may not do anything yeah. good. Right. Right? And I think, and then, I mean, you're building bigger muscles. It's like you have a, a bigger car, but you don't have a better driver or a better <laughs> engine. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So. yeah, and I think this brings up an important point that's so interesting about swallowing is that um, people can have swallowing problems for such a variety of reasons for um, whether it's due to stroke, whether it's due to ALS or Parkinson's disease, or whether they just had surgery and their vagus nerve was severed. So there's so many different etiologies, and I think that it's so important to understand the mechanism of why somebody is having trouble swallowing, same as in physical therapy, because it's important to understand where that injury is occurring. Is it at the level of the nerve? Is it at the level of the muscle? And sometimes just understanding their etiology of why they have dysphagia can actually help us understand what is actually occurring. Right, so if they have 
disuse atrophy because they've been, you know, I don't know, let's say somebody has been on, in a coma, an induced oh, yeah. coma for a while. Yeah. Well, I think most people would argue that you're going to target maybe a few things going on depending on how they present. I don't think anyone would argue with strengthening there, but here's the issue, and maybe you can answer this question. For swallowing, we do not have a way to measure, To we do not know how much pressure is needed to swallow. Okay. The reason we don't know is because in order to test that, you need to put a device in the way. So we don't know how much pressure is needed to displace a, a, bit, a bolus of food. Okay. Because we can't measure the food unless somebody comes up with something that someone swallows where you can understand the forces on it that is also safe. Really? No, we have no clue. You don't have like a, you don't have like a, 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 pill? a force transducer that you can swallow? Yes. No, 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 not that you can swallow. Really? Wait, no, do you want to make that for us? <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait, are we are we going to solve this problem on no. this podcast? <laughs> but you might want to talk to engineering here. Oh, we do want to talk to engineering. It, the difficulty is getting them to be interested enough. That's yeah, often yeah, yeah. the difficulty. It yeah. also, when they realize how complicated swallowing is and how much, you know, the ethics committee is going to be concerned, if it's a pill... That's fine, but then they're concerned about how it goes through the system, how it comes yeah, out of yeah, the toilet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are yeah, issues, yeah, right? But there's a. But 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 my point is that if you have, we know how much pressure you generate for the most part when a device is in the way. You swallow a catheter, yeah. the pressure is against the catheter. Yeah. You push the bulb and you swallow the bulb in your mouth. But we don't actually, and when in those circumstances for the tongue, you use less than fifty percent of your max generation to swallow. Okay. And of yeah. course, that's because. If we all got tired after breakfast, we'd all just die of starvation because we're like, oh, my tongue's still tired from breakfast, can't have lunch, can't have dinner. Like, that wouldn't work. And for speech, it's less than 25%, right? For speech? Yeah, less than 20%. For far smaller pressures to make a a t sound, for instance, right? But for, do you know of what some of the differences are for some of the daily things we we do just for walking? It probably varies quite a bit from person to person. So my max leg press has not a whole lot to do with it's going to be different from no. the amount of strength that I use to walk versus a track stars mm-hmm. there the difference between what they use to walk and the amount that they can the max they can generate is greater than mine right. so and that's kind of the case with with isometric tongue pressures so we know that above 40 kilopascals is generally where you want to be okay. but we don't there's this idea that reserve is a big deal that if you have more space between what you use and what you actually can produce that in the event that your max comes down you still have something left Mm -hmm. do you guys have that reserve concept at all in any other system that you're familiar with so Uh, for instance a track star gonna be better off if they in terms of recovering walking than me just because their max is much higher than mine I so let's think about disuse, okay? Um, to put in the context that you mentioned before, if someone was in coma, um, I, I, my understanding is that yes, if someone did some kind of hypertrophy training, let's say you know not track but um, some kind of resistance training, and it's a, an athlete that is it really has big muscles, then they undergo through some kind of surgery and they're in bed rest for a while. I think that yes, you will have that better ability to then walk after that mm-hmm. because there is a minimum amount of muscle mass and muscle force that you need to walk and that person started out with a bigger muscle and it mm-hmm. dropped but it, it 
it wasn't enough time to drop it below the minimum. Mm-hmm. So proportionally, mm-hmm. they've saved some. Yes, yeah. So they, they have they have the the minimum amount, and mm-hmm. they have it because they started out bigger. Yeah. And then that allowed them to still be able to walk. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that in that con- context, yes, and I okay. think that that's true also for uh, for the inspiratory muscles. Mm-hmm. You know because. Um, one of the, the few things that is uh, proven to be beneficial to minimize post-op complications is inspiratory muscle training, same mm-hmm. way that you do with expiratory, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You do with inspiratory. And I think the idea is, I mean, the person didn't have weakness to begin with, yeah. right? It was normal, all, all normal. But then you build strength because you know you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that person might stay in the ventilator a little longer mm-hmm. um, or might not be able to inhale and perhaps cough properly um, if they don't build that strength just because there will be a loss with mm-hmm. surgery so if you start at a, a bigger baseline then that loss proportionally is, is going to keep you in it's an interesting concept be. because I, I've had quite a few people actually ask me about this and say so should I be doing IMST, EMST, lingual strengthening in case something happens to me in the future that I'm going to, maybe I have risk factors for stroke, maybe I, I'm anticipating a surgery, should I be doing strengthening for something that requires submaximal effort, is that going to help me? Well, I think it depends on what ends up being your problem. So right. let's talk about that athlete who has twice as much strength as I have and etc. Mm-hmm. And if we both come out of the coma and we both have balance issues, it's not a muscle strengthening. It doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't so matter. you can say, matter. yeah, build up those muscles. But now you have an issue with um, spasticity. Now you're just banging your health self in the face harder, right? Because yes. you have all the strength, but you don't know how to use it, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. So uh, then I guess the question is, what is fatigue? What is fatigue? So we understand uh, we understand weakness. You can assess. So what do you understand of fatigue? What is fatigue for you? Let's let's. I, in swallowing, I can't say that we really understand that. I'm going to tell you what people often say. People say if you can't get through them through a meal, um, then you are fatigued. If someone complains that I'm too tired to get through it, or they find that their fourth generation appears to be different after a meal or they have more res- the residue continues to build up and their movements are slower they'll say well they've fatigued and I'm wondering if they're using that same in the in the same vein as weak meaning things are going down and the only work that comes to mind is fatigue but it could just be that they're more challenged and the deficits are increasing but it doesn't mean it's a weakness def- deficit so I'm not okay. sure okay so it's um, this is a can be a touchy issue so what they're describing <laughs> They're describing is task failure. Task failure. They're not describing Which I've read in the literature. Yes. Keep so talking. task failure means you give the person a task and eventually they fail, mm-hmm. right? And that could be running, it could be swallowing. Mm-hmm. You say, you're gonna do this repeatedly and at some point you're not gonna be able to do it anymore. But your muscles started fatiguing way, way earlier, mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. earlier. So mm-hmm. we see fatigue, you can see signs of fatigue within the first few contractions. Mm. But the fact that you are maintaining the task doesn't mean that you are fatigued, that that you are not fatiguing. Mm -hmm. It just means that you found alternative ways to keep it going. Ah, so it's like the plank. I'm gonna tell you right now, when they make you do the plank, 
right? You know what I'm talking about oh, for your core? The, yeah. At first, you're sitting, you're, you're holding your muscles, you're like, crap, my muscles. pirates for I know, a minute. And, <laughs> oh, the plank, walking the plank, no, no, not hook from Peter Pan. But if you're holding that isometric plank position for your abs, there's a point where it starts to hurt. So I transfer it to my quads to give my abs a break. And then I transfer it back to my abs to give my quads a break. And then I try to transfer it to my shoulder to the point where I can't transfer it anywhere anymore and yeah. I just hit the floor. Mm-hmm. So that's what you mean. There's time to failure or time I've also, to task failure. I've, time to task failure. I've seen kind of both in the literature. Yeah. yeah. And then there's fatigue, which you're saying, if you're measuring fatigue, am I correct here? Let me know. If someone's actually me- measuring um, the motor units or muscle, mo- the motor units in a particular muscle, muscle for a given task, those motor units that are being recruited are gradually going down in any task, right? But the task somehow you are able to maintain by just doing other things to keep it going. So the, the definition of fatigue is not necessarily that you're using less, that the task ends, it's that these muscle, that the recruitment of these fibers goes down. Um, and that can be normal. So let's let's say to not just focus on the recruitment because that can be an issue. Okay. But um, it is, uh, what I would say is I would like to see an assessment of contractile properties of the muscle mm-hmm. and those are changing. Those are changing in what we would consider a negative way. So mm-hmm. what do I mean by that? Well, if you, you know, if we simplify and we say, um, let's just get someone to do the knee extension, right? So they're just gonna repeat that time after time. Mm -hmm. Then you ask them, suppose that they can can lift 100 pounds and you ask them to do 50 pounds repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Then after 10 contractions, if you test their muscles, you will see that they no longer can lift that same 100 pounds. Sure. Right? But they kept the 50 going Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a sign of fatigue. Yeah. Well, they perhaps you see that they can still lift the 100 pounds, mm-hmm. but not as fast. Okay. That's another sign of fatigue. Okay. So the contractile properties of the muscle have changed. Yeah. They have changed in a way that will eventually lead to task failure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then that's it depends really on... Good. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's really good. That's really good. And let's just make a statement here that fatigue is normal. Yeah. Everybody yes. will fatigue. It's just that everybody's time to task failure is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, we're, we're going to make it through the meal, right? Of course. If someone can't make it through the meal, one, that is definitely time to task failure that is shorter, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily mean it ended because of fatigue. We still don't know that. Correct. Yeah. Right? So if somebody that. didn't finish their tray in an inpatient, and we can't say, well, they didn't finish it, so they're yeah. weak and they're fatigued, we can say they didn't finish their yeah. tray. We don't actually know, right? Well, I think, yeah, and I think it's important, you know, at this point, if you're listening, you're like, so what the hell, <laughs> right? So <laughs> I, it may sound like we're being picky about semantics, but here's why I think it's important, is that I would really love for clinicians to adapt the terminology of time to da- task failure and really focus on what is happening that makes that task fail. Mm -hmm. Because to me, when you use the word fatigue, it implies a lot of physiologic things that we can't measure. And that's where I get a little bit... Or that we don't measure. That we don't measure, exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, it's implying things that we know about the muscle physiology and what's actually happening at a level that we can't measure when we're just looking at somebody swallowing. So I really love the term time to task failure and referencing it in comparison to what 
we would expect to be normal. Well, that's part of the issue. None of our literature is saying, well, it's because no one has a problem getting through a burger and fries. I mean, mm-hmm. in the United States, that's generally not the issue, right? Right. So we know that people should be able to get through a meal, provided things are, in, are intact. They think it tastes good. They feel like eating. They don't want to be stared at eating. Like, leave control for all those variables, and people can get through a meal. Yeah. If someone can't get through a meal, we have to be thinking about all the reasons one might not get through it, right? Mm-hmm. And it could very well be other things, right? Right. So let's say we control for all those variables. How would we actually measure this? We can't as clinicians unless you are going to somehow understand the contractile properties right. of the intrinsic lingual muscles, which is too invasive for what we're doing. So on the research end, it's really our job to get some of that literature pretty solid so that we could figure out what clinical, clinically relevant tasks might um, represent whatever we're seeing in the lab, right? Yeah. But then my question for you, Leo, is you gave us some great normals examples. What about after someone's had a stroke, for instance, or whatever pathology? How do Stroke how is was, a big one. Well, what could be stroke? It could be something else, because, you know, stroking of uh, different outcomes. But let's just, let's just think about any clinically relevant population you think is a great example. How do they determine fatigue? Is it time to task failure or inability to even do the task at all? So obviously sit, sit to stand, they can't even do it. It's not, it's not a, they're not timing that, right? Yeah, I think in the clinical setting, typically it's more time to task failure. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, in the research setting, you'll see more of, um, you know, something more invasive or something more specific. Um, like EMG or something like that? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that in the clinical setting, it's typically time to task failure or you give them um, a time and see how they perform within that period of yeah. time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, we're always talking about if someone cannot finish their meal, but, you know, the alternative is give them 10 minutes and see how much they can eat in 10 that's minutes, true. right? That's so true. that's that's another way of looking at it. So sometimes there is time to task mm-hmm. failure, but sometimes like a six minute walk test. Yes. That's not a time to task mm-hmm. failure. It's like do how whatever you, you can yeah. in six minutes mm-hmm. and you choose the pace and, and so that's, that's typically, I think, how it will be done in the clinical setting. Um, I, you know, if, if a, a, a clinician gets a little bit more so t- sophisticated but not particularly fancy, they could per- perhaps um, not look for time to task failure because that has a lot of volitional issues with it, right? Okay. Um, it's very easy for someone who is struggling because of pulmonary or cardiac disease that they just don't want to deal with that struggle. Yeah. It's not that their muscles are not mm-hmm. working. They're tired. They're just, yeah, they're yeah. just, you know, it's just, let's say, bored of it. It's oh. like, I don't, I don't like to deal with this discomfort. Oh. I, can, I can handle it, I just mm-hmm. don't like to deal with it. Yeah. Okay. And so then one way is you give someone a task and then you measure their maximal force before and at the end of a predefined period of time after you've done that task. So you don't wait for them to fail. Mm-hmm. But then you measure their maximal force before and after that yeah. predefined period. So that could actually work. It could work, especially because With IOP, IOP. But also we IOP? have a me- yeah, yeah. He's like <laughs> fill me in. So that's the Iowa Oral Performance Instrument. It is the air-filled bulb that you put on bulb that you put on your mouth, and you displace it by pushing your tongue to your hard palate, and it tells you in kilopascals how much force you've generated. That would be great. It's isometric. You can swallow with it in your mouth. But, and there was a study like that, Joanne Robbins, um, the first author of Stephanie Kays, where they had young people and older people 
do the maximum pressures. Then they add ate a meal that's more taxing, like carrots and peanut butter, sort of things that are viscous or require a lot of chewing. And then they measured it after to see the extent to which the um, maximum pressures at the tongue and the front and back of the tongue changed. Yeah. Another tool that is used often that I think should be incorporated more clinically is um, the pharyngeal constriction ratio. So we have, because we can't measure kilopascals outside, in, in the in the throat, basically beyond the tongue, is we have these surrogate measures of strength. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the pharyngeal constriction ratio where um, it measures a predefined area at rest and then it at the height of the swallow, so where there should be max contraction, it measures that amount of area and it takes a ratio. So but isn't that just measuring range of motion? So that gets into a kind of a different but really, topic. really, isn't it, though, if you think about it? Mm-hmm. If you say to somebody that we want to know whether or not you can get your fist to your shoulder, so you're using your bicep, right? So your yeah. arm is down, you have to get your fist to your shoulder, and then back down. Mm-hmm. And you measure, you know, the angle when it's, you know, straight, and then what the angle is, mm-hmm. the most acute possible angle. Right. That could be measuring strength, the bicep, but it could yeah. also just be measuring range of motion, more so it's a surrogate of bicep but really so if you only do one swallow that's not a measure of strength because we was well, saying you know a, before saying? and at like at the beginning so say you you do it in the beginning and then you do 20 swallows ah, and so, you measure oh, I see it, what you're saying and you measure it at, at 20 swallows because what happens in swallowing where i see fatigue used is that the swallow gets worse and worse and worse and worse over time and they say the swallow fatigued. So mm-hmm. there's increased residue in the pharynx. They're not managing the bolus as well. And that's what I think people are often associating with fatigue is that de- is that progressive decline in function over time. So I think that being able to use some of these surrogate measures of strength to So is that quantify, time to task failure then? That's time to task failure. It is, but in a different way, right? Because... Yeah. Yeah. Because saying how much can you eat in 10 minutes is is a time to task failure sort No, no, no. he's saying that's, 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 that's where you figure out how much one can do in a fixed amount of time. That's one way to do it. The other thing is to just keep doing it. We, your final outcome variable is time. Yeah. So your final outcome variable could be the number of repetitions in a fixed amount of time. Yeah. Or it can be you have this... You do yeah. as many time, do as many you can until you can't do it anymore. Yeah, and they the, can both be used. And the reason why, I, but the reason why I bring up PCR pharyngeal constriction ratio is because I like that it's actually measuring the physiology versus saying time to task failure is how long did it take you until you aspirated. It's not aspirated though, is it? Time to task failure is not not we people don't do they aspirate because of strength issues. We haven't established that. We don't know much, do we? Well, I mean, if you have enough residue because of strength issues that eventually you're not able to manage it in your pharynx and now it's overflowing into your airway, then I would think, yeah, but that, absolutely. To me, but to me, it would have been the accumulation of residue that we'd be measuring, not the final... Um, right, uh, some bolus outcome. Sure. Whether it's aspiration or whether it's residue, um, you know, it, really focusing on the physiology versus the, the, the bolus. So, so with the IOP, mm-hmm. one of the things I was wondering is, so we can we can measure force, like mm-hmm. you mentioned. You can do a pre and post, and the study did it. But you know, one other option, and I, I don't know how the 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 apparatus, the device actually works. But one other option would be to not look for the, the changing force, but 
but to look at the change in the development of force. Because if you say, well, that patient um, reached their peak force in 500 milliseconds mm -hmm. before the trial, mm -hmm. and it took them then a thousand milliseconds after the trial, but they, he got to the same force, mm -hmm. or she got to the same force, but it was much slower, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about how fast you swallow, mm -hmm. now you have you know, how fast you contract, that becomes an issue. And that is a sign of fatigue. So is lowering of contraction is... We can, we can. On the new IOP Pro, there's actually going to be software where you can see the actual, mm. um, you can see the slope. You can see, you see the, the, up, the, the, the actual trace, up. right? Right, and yeah. so you can, and it will measure your baseline to your peak and tell you the time between the two. So that certainly is possible. I think if people take in the same concepts that they know about if they've ever been to a gym ever in life, whether they're a forest or not, yeah. the things that they know is, let's say they people say do three reps, of t three sets of 10, right? Of whatever behavior. You know by the last set you're burning and you're just, you need more time in between each rep. That is, that is an objective way to understand it. How much time between each rep, so between each push, right? So yeah. if they're doing, they're, this IOP, it's um, some of the, the regimen is you, let's say you're targeting 60% of max, then you'll do 10 sets three times a day, right? But let's say you do it in one therapy session. By the time you get to the third set, you could be measuring the time between mm -hmm. as well. That's one way to get a sense of how they're changing over time to say, well, this time around, you're actually not really having as much time in between the sets. But we want to avoid the concept, the idea of saying, fatigue because we're actually not measuring that. What we're That's measuring true. is the actual task, right? right? That's true. And there's nothing wrong with not being able to say the F word in your yeah. clinical notes. It doesn't mean you're, in fact, you don't look like you know what you're doing if you're saying fatigue and you actually, someone says, define fatigue and you go, well, you know, it's like when you're tired, like that's not cool. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? If a PT yeah. says, oh, you guys do fatigue as well. What's, you know, when you guys define it, you say, oh, they couldn't finish their meal. It's like, mm that's not the same thing. Yeah. So sometimes these things end up in our notes because we see it in other rehab domains and we adopt it, but we actually may or may not actually know the, the, the scientific term, the medical term, and what's what really should be documented. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Go ahead. I, so I just want to take a step back again because I still feel like I haven't fully addressed this concern <laughs> that I have. Okay. That in our field, we overdiagnose weakness. Yeah. That we look at a swallow and we say it's weak and we try to strengthen it and that's mm -hmm. not the appropriate plan that we should take. So, um, Dr. Ferrer, bear with us for just a minute. I think we should talk about some swallowing events mm -hmm. that could be either an issue with timing or an issue with strength. Okay. So... For example, um, an area that I see often categorized as weak is the UES. Because what? there's Wait, residue. Say that again? So if there's residue in the piriform sinuses, then it's the swallow is weak. But there's oh, a lot of things that can happen with the UES that has nothing to do so with So let strength. me see if I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You're saying you have read a document where they say the UES is weak. Oh, the swallow is weak. Okay. Due to residue in okay, the piriform sinuses. Okay, can we talk about sinuses. residue? Sure. Okay. If we're talking about residue, what you're saying is after the swallow, there's stuff left over that was not swallowed. Yep. First things first is, do they know that residue is there? So unless you're doing sensory testing, you don't know if they even were prompted to double mm -hmm. swallow because 
so many healthy people in our studies have to do a double swallow to clear stuff. Mm-hmm. They just feel a little something there and they double swallow. We do it all the time. Right. So needing to double swallow and having residue in and of itself is not abnormal. Right. The question is, have you confirmed that they knew what to do with the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Fine. Let's say somehow you know their sensory is fine. Good luck. Tell me how you do that. Down in the piriform sinuses. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next thing is going to be, if they did, if they managed the first part of the bolus and it went through, and the second, it didn't completely go through, could that be a timing thing? Right. Could it be that the upper esophageal sphincter didn't open long enough for it to okay. get through? It got trapped, it closed too fast, and the stuff was just sitting there. Right. We don't know if it's a timing issue, we don't know if it's a sensory issue, we don't know if it's a range of motion issue, meaning the pharynx completely chased the tail of the bolus completely through. Mm-hmm. The last thing I'd be thinking about is strength on fluoro. I don't know that fluoro is ever, in the same way you don't use fluoro to confirm sensation, you can infer sensation, but can mm-hmm. you confirm it? I wouldn't use it to confirm strength either. Right. I think fluoro is meant for timing and range of motion primarily, and you can infer the other two. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with saying suspected, but then don't just copy, paste, copy, uh, refine, replace all your weeks with suspect week now. Yeah. Like actually do something to figure out if it's So there. can you differentiate for me strength versus range of motion. So a typical area is the tongue, right? I think the tongue gets really probably the worst rap. The tongue gets a bad rap. A really bad rap for strength. I'm a little sensitive over that thing. Okay, So when a patient is, has, um, they're they're swallowing and the base of tongue does not meet the posterior pharyngeal wall and there's this Mm -hmm. big gap Mm -hmm. at the height of the swallow and as a result there's residue Mm post-swallow. Can you tell me a little bit more about is it that the pharynx or the tongue is weak or is it range of motion or is it timing? How? What's the bolus? Is it thin liquid? We'll say it's a pudding. Okay it's a pudding so you likely do need more generation Mm -hmm. to get it through and you're saying it does not contact the posterior pharyngeal wall exactly so we don't know if it couldn't contact it because it didn't have enough range of motion think of somebody with an arthritic shoulder who's trying to um, make what do you call it windmill movements with your arm what is this called when you make a circle with your arm Uh, okay you you know you guys I'm making a circle with my arm so like my dad has arthritis in his shoulders he really can't reach for things in a high shelf he can lift all of his luggage though. He doesn't have a problem with that. He can lift certain things over his shoulder, but then it's gonna stop because his shoulder's arthritic. So we don't know if they have an issue with range of motion with their uh, lingual protractor, uh, retractors. Mm-hmm. We don't know if that's the case. We don't know if it's truly a forced generation issue. We, we, we don't know. Right. Strength can impair range of motion. And, and range of motion can appear to be, be strength. a strength issue. Right, but they're mutually exclusive from each other. Or they can be mutually inclusive. It's yep. your job as a speech pathologist yep. to identify the pathology. Yep. Or the timing can be off. So um, maybe they were too late or maybe they were too early mm-hmm. and, and it didn't coordinate with where the bolus was in the fairings at the time that that pressure needed to be generated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that... I think that these are really, really important things to consider clinically because I, I really feel strongly that we overemphasize weakness, mm-hmm. and um, I and think part of it is that that's how um, timing and coordination isn't incorporated in in um, evaluation of swallowing. It's as too frequently. hard to do. That's why it's mm-hmm. just hard to do. And what are you going to do with the timing problem? Really, mm-hmm. what are our therapies for timing? Yeah, nothing. Unless, I mean, I think that it's it's a little more relevant when we're talking about the airway and um, whether 
the airway closed fast enough or whether it closed long enough. But even versus... you hear things like weak epiglottis. That's like saying weak eyelashes. Yeah. Like you know what I'm saying? Like it, it's it doesn't make <laughs> doesn't make sense because I mean yes, there's the area epiglottic muscle which does need to generate enough force, but it's right. not sufficient to completely invert the epiglottis. It's the tongue and the pharynx and all these other structures that impinge upon the epiglottis. Yeah. So if your eyelids aren't blinking, you can't blame the eyelashes. Be like, you guys didn't move. It's attached to something that's supposed to move it. Right. Okay. I'm. I'm my soapbox. Is, it's getting heavy. We can't see her anymore. She's, okay. Her soapbox is really okay, tall right now. Okay. So there's right another F word that I want to talk about, and it's frail. Okay. Do you have any definition, or do you talk about frail at all? <laughs> Give me the head shake. No, I I hear the word. I read it. I see people. <laughs> but there is no, I don't think that there is a, in, in my mind, there is no clear definition of frailty. You know, if people say, oh, uh, you see even like as an inclusion criteria for studies, oh, it's a frail, mm-hmm. older person. Mm-hmm. I, I think the definition there becomes loose. It's really, um, in my field, what I see are people looking at strength, ability to walk, and that's how they define frail. Mm-hmm. Um, is that really what it means to be mm-hmm. frail? Mm-hmm. I, it's yeah. hard, right? Because you have to really have the whole system intact, and then you can say frail. So my burning question is, um, in speech pathology and dysphagia management, we deal a lot with cancer patients. Okay. And the word cachexia gets thrown around a lot, and um, I think that there needs to be some clarity in our field about what what that means when we um, term somebody as cachectic, because I think sometimes it gets used synonymously with malnourished or just underweight, but my understanding of cachexia is it actually involves real muscle pathology that is different than just muscle atrophy and that strengthening or treatment for a patient with cachexia might look a little bit different than just somebody who is quote frail or um, have experienced some muscle atrophy. Is that true? Can you help us clarify that a little bit? Yeah, so in the the cachexia story is, you know, it's like this all the one, frail or fatigue, it can get tricky. So there is a definition now. Um, It's not exactly, you know, a field that I'm quite familiar with, but I know the definition. Um, and so a couple of years ago, a group of clinician scientists and basic scientists agreed that they would say cachexia would be defined as, uh, I think, a 6% loss of body weight over the previous six months or 12 months without you know, any diet or any intention of losing mm-hmm. weight. Um, and then to say it's cancer cachexia, then you have to have a diagnosis of cancer. But there is also cardiac cachexia, which mm. is someone has cardiac disease and then they have this cachexia. And it has to be loss of muscle and fat, not mm. just muscle. Oh, gotcha. okay. Yeah, so yeah, that, that's, like it's, a, it's a whole body yeah. issue. It's a whole body issue. It's not So the muscle m- may have some signs of what you call pathology, but it, it may just be smaller. Yeah. And then but you're losing both fat and muscle. And it doesn't respond well to supplemental nutrition. Not always, yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. That's it's not it's not like a, a necessarily a nutritional deficit. Gotcha. It's not always the case. I, I think in cancer cachexia you can have that nutrition deficit. Mm-hmm. But in other forms of cachexia people are eating just fine and, and they're still losing that body they're, weight. Exactly. They yeah. can't make up for it by just yeah. increasing. Because a lot of our patients end up getting supplemental nutrition through a PEG tube or through a nasogastric tube or whatever. And what's 
hallmark in these cases is that no matter how much you're ramping up that supplemental nutrition, they're still losing the muscle and the fat at yes. the same rate. Because you're not treating the cause, right? Exactly. Yeah, you're just giving them more food, but that's not what is causing them to like lose weight. I feel like giving people more food deals with every problem, no? Yeah. <laughs> so Smaller frequent meals, that's what true. I hear from nutrition, right? Smaller, Smaller more frequent, frequent meals yes, for so. who? Everybody? That's like a joke among some nutritionists, I believe, that it's like, that's what, like, you treat all the problems that way. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have to be careful. That's our label strengthening. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I have to be careful not to offend our nutritionist fans. Or you don't. I mean, this is down the hatch. You can say whatever you want. Wait a minute. Um, You mentioned that um, in swallowing, there is a lot of strength training. But nobody does endurance training. Like, they give someone something to swallow just over and over and over again. So, oh, so there is a couple of answers to that question. Endurance training can happen in a couple of ways. You can use the structures that are involved in swallowing in a non-swallowing task and do something like time to task failure, which I've done in my lab recently. A master's student did this, used the IOP bulb and pushed the bulb to the roof of the mouth at, um, I think it was 20% of their max and like 80% of their max to understand time to task failure. So that's just that isometric. And we've also done sort of an iso- isotonic type of movement where they needed to um, see how long they can maintain that. But when it comes to swallowing, the problem is the stomach. The stomach gets full before someone's structure gets tired. So you can chug and chug and chug in your oral cavity. Your mouth's not going to get tired, but your stomach will get full and you will want to throw up. Even for a patient? Oh, well, I don't... Well, we would... With, if you have, if you're a patient with dysphagia, the idea of chugging is usually the last thing we want them to be doing, yeah. right? Because we're, if you're testing the boluses they have difficulty with, and they don't have a problem with aspiration, they might have an issue with residue. So we use two bolus issues to determine what the dysphagia is, right? Unfortunately, some things go into someone's airway, but let's say that's not their issue. Let's say the person has an underlying diagnosis where they have generalized weakness. So this really is a weak, like myasthenia gravis, right? So we're gonna say, we're gonna assume that it's a weakness reason when they have all this residue. There's a point where you have so much residue that you can't clear, swallow after swallow after swallow, that now it starts to dump into the only available space, which, which is your trachea. So yeah. the, the caveats with um, sort of walking is that you can put them in a harness, and if they slip, then there's something to hold them up, or you can have people help. We can't. We don't have a bolus catcher that goes in the trachea and like retrieves the the, the bolus, Aspirate right? Aspirate for them. Yeah. So the problem in a patient population is where's all that bolus going? And then the problem in studying it in healthies is that they usually need run to use a bathroom, or you know they start burping a lot, and it just becomes a lower GI issue, yeah. and not so much an upper one. Well, where I think it's really important is. Um, so we, when we see patients that haven't been able to, or they lose their ability to eat or drink, um, or they haven't been able to eat or drink for a long period of time, and a good example is patients that have been intubated for a long period of time that just, they have a breathing tube and they can't swallow. Um, when the breathing tube comes out, swallowing by nature is an endurance task. We swallow all day, throughout the day, constantly. So now when you take that away, it's really, debilitating to the swallowing because now you're saying you can't have anything to eat or drink. I've seen people that even want their patients to spit in a cup. They don't even want them to swallow their saliva, which there is a lot of research that's coming out more and more that's saying this is one of the worst things that we can do is to take swallowing away. So it's it's may not we may not think of it as an endurance task, but I think having patients 
swallow as much as possible to help recover is more important than, well, I don't want you to swallow very often. I just want you to swallow five times a day, but when you do, do it really strong. To me, that doesn't make any sense, right? It's That's it's, like taking five very hard stomps a day and <laughs> sitting down for the rest of the day. Exactly. You know, and they're like, no, no, don't walk. Just stomp five times and sit your butt back <laughs> or, down. Yeah, yeah. or in the same case of the ICU patient, having them walk the unit slowly, you know, just to get that motor program going, just, mm-hmm. to, just to get moving versus, well, I'm going to get you out of bed and have you do some really intense leg presses and then we're going to put you back, yeah. right? So I, I don't think we think of it as an endurance task, but it kind of is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that you want patients to swallow as frequently as possible. Right. So, and you should But as safely as possible. And so you that's shouldn't, healthy people, as you said before, we don't get tired at all. Yeah. So it's... Exactly. Otherwise, we could figure out a diet regimen. I mean, think about it. Let's say we could figure out a way to tire out someone's swallowing mechanism. So that would be a total, like, weight loss program that we could, <laughs> like, we would make billions. Do you hear me? Like, if we could fatigue, you're just sitting there and like, this machine is fatiguing the crap out of your neck as you just sit there. And then you're like, oh, cheesecake. You're like, oh, crap, my neck. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Can't handle it. Yeah, yeah, let's just change our feel. Like, okay. you're going to make the pill that tells us about the pressure. Oh, I don't right? know. <laughs> no? <laughs> And we're going to figure out the swallow fatigue mechanism. Sounds good. Um, So, I mean, we've dropped the F-bomb and the Mm W-bomb. And so if if we're wrapping up and summarizing and we're talking about weakness, we're saying that we need to be thinking about someone's ability to uh, somebody's force generation is less than whatever we're saying it should be given their age, their sex, their height, their weight, etc. Right? And one might be weak for a max contraction task, but totally within functional limits. So as speech pathologists, we need to be thinking about whether or not we're pumping up someone's maximum um, isometric pressure, is what we'd call it for the IOP, but in other fields they call it max volitional contraction, right? Either way, yet their ability to function in that less than 50% is still bad. Mm-hmm. So you've taken them from 70 kilopascals as their max over eight weeks. Now it's 100 kilopascals, but the things they need to do in that less than 50% is still bad. They still mm-hmm. have residue. They still have all those things. And so if that's the case, you're learning that they don't have an issue with force generation. They have an issue with something else, right? And residue is just that. It's just residue. Residue is a sign of something, but not necessarily weakness. Yeah. So the other thing I think we've sort of gotten to is the concept of fatigue. And that what we're probably really doing is task failure that we need to be thinking about, or time to task failure to be specifically. It could be time to task, or it could be task failure, depending on the variables you set that we talked about. Not necessarily that you can't recruit specific muscles or some true physiologic deficit, mm-hmm. right? And that that exists in healthy people with all systems green. Exactly. And if I can just add that... Um Clinically, when we're evaluating, there's so much more to cause a swallow to be impaired that's beyond breakdowns in strength, and that really considering the timing of, of the structures and the coordination, because throwing strengthening exercises 
when there isn't a strengthening issue is going to not help your patients. Right. So I think that incorporating, you know, it's just one piece of the puzzle is strength, and in your patient it may not be any of their puzzle whatsoever. Right, right. And Maggie Lee Huckabee, who is one of the other people who focuses on skill like I do, says, do we want to be strengthening people who have coordination issues? Are we just applying the sledgehammer approach? Yeah. So if they can do those fine-tuned movements with their tongue to push a bolus back, are they just mashing their tongue now harder to their hard yeah. palate indiscriminately. Yeah. So do we really want to make certain Hulk smash. That's right, exactly. Do we just wanna <laughs> do we want to Hulk smash everything, right? <laughs> Jeff for this big time. <laughs> well, I'm certainly grateful that you were willing to be on this podcast for us. Thank you so much for My bearing pleasure. with our um, oral cavity related things. I know. You heard things like pharyngeal constriction rate ratio and IOP. And Never um, heard before. I don't know if you'll yeah. ever use them in life, but you can always okay. you can throw them around at dinner and sound super smart, right? <laughs> I hope it sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it does sound pretty it cool. Does, yeah. And if you're international, some folks say IOPI, right? Yes. Um, we have a large Brazilian. Um, this is cohort so true. That listens to this podcast and are swallowologists. So can you, say you have to say where you're from. Yes. And give a shout out to the Brazilians that listen to the That's podcast. Right. Paulo. I'm from São Paulo, São Paulo, which means Ooh. like New York, New York. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> we had a postdoc that was in our he lab met recently. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Remember, I'm that's when I discovered she wasn't lying. She actually does speak Portuguese. Oh. Because she would have been faking this Brazilian accent. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So can you say something? Uh, what, do, what does he need to say in Portuguese? Swallow. We wouldn't know. Engolir. We wouldn't know either way. How do you way. say? Engolir. Engolir? Yeah. That's how you say swallow? That is correct. True. You could be basically saying you are an <laughs> These guys idiot, are and crazy, like, yeah! and I can't believe I had to sit here for an hour. <laughs> oh, say this. At least I'm not fatigued, right? Ooh. <laughs> punny. Very punny. Very punny. Well, thanks again for participating. We really Thank appreciate you. it. And um, this, is, this is hopefully going to change the practice. I get it.